It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Hey, Torin, how's it going? One day closer, feeling a little bit better, moving through Q1, acting like we bosses over in this joint. Like we feel really, really, really good. And people don't understand why, like, I'm so excited. You like you're my pod partner and you might not even know why I'm so excited, but like literally thinking about where we were and where we're trying to go behind the scenes, the edits and the tweaks that we are making. Like I'm literally smiling over here. I can't wait for people to hear the new version of crazy and the King. So the response is I'm all good. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty exciting. And I I guess we can, kind of semi-announced that we're going to be joining a podcast network next month. Is that okay to say? I think you just said it. Like, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I kind of think you just said it. Like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we got two listeners, at least you and I. So, I mean, you know, if nothing else, the two of us heard it. So I guess that's what it is. Definitely no, and we definitely have more than two listeners. Yeah, 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 which is a good thing. And I think, you know, for our listeners, you know, know that Julie and I made the decision and I lean on Julie with, with, with you know, administrative, you know, components of our podcast because we really do want, we say this all the time, but we really do want to give a premier product and not premier as in the best, but premier as in, we are working harder to get better at giving all of our listeners a great product, one that you can confidently share with other people. It's going to change the composition of the content and how it's put together. But we are definitely excited about, you know, joining that network. I'm glad that uh, we made that decision. So part of our growth. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty exciting. Absolutely. So I uh, I just got home from Smart Recruiters and uh, how was it? It was it was pretty good. I always uh, think that Jerome and team put on a nice a nice show. A lot of um, high level folks there on stage. So I was it was a nice um, change of pace. Not quite as spread out as a lot of the conferences that we go to. So there was a lot more ability to interact and engage with people. So thanks to that team for having us out. And um, I did a, a roundtable on disability ask me anything and so that was a lot of fun a lot of great interactions and and learned a lot myself too about ta transformation yeah and jerome dropped the book so for those of you who are not familiar with smart recruiters you may want to go out and look for jerome turnick uh i won't try to spell his name not in the moment uh but definitely look for the ceo uh, of smart recruiters he dropped the book they do put on an amazing event uh, I wasn't there this year, but I'm sure you held it down. I saw some of your tweets. Uh, I saw other people out there like Lars riding around on electric skateboards. Mm-hmm. You know, I know Charney was in the building. I know Fisher was in the building. So, yeah, it was a beautiful thing. Did you see Kimberly Jones? Was she there? Are you serious? She was there? No, I did not see her. I didn't even I 
check her feed pretty regularly to see where she's at so we can finally meet in person. I had no idea. I, I saw kind of the usual players and, and didn't meet anyone kind of from the Speakers Bureau that I hadn't known before. It's all good. Well, Kimberly, you know that we gave you a brief little shout out. We're looking for you. Uh, we are hoping that our paths cross at some point in 2020. I know that they will. Uh, I just thought that it may have been earlier in the year rather than uh, a few weeks later. So it's all good. But I'm glad you had a good time, Jay. Yeah, it was great. And I am really interested in the first story that you're bringing us today. Um, so you want to kick us off? Silicon Valley's cocaine problem shaped our racist tech. How's that for kicking us off? Yeah, so I want you all that are listening to understand we found this incredible story over on The Guardian. And the title of the story is Silicon Valley's Cocaine Problem Shaped our racist tech. Now, a piece of me wants to apologize or to set this story up in a way that is, um, I'll use the route of uh, the word or the phrase, uh, the route of a pacifist, the, the route of an apologist, if you will. Uh, because I know that sometimes when people hear uh, some of these titles, the way that we frame certain conversations, you know, they may they may categorize myself or both of us, Julie, in a, a particular light. But I'm not going to apologize for anything in this one because it's something that I've I've um, I've actually known. But I I couldn't express it the way that Charlton D. McElwain expressed it. And Charlton D. McElwain actually uh, is associated with the Center for Critical Race and Digital Studies. He's a vice provost for faculty engagement development uh, at New York University. You can find him on Twitter at CM, well, actually C. McElwain, that's C-M-C-I-L-W-A-I-N. And of course, we'll have that in the show notes. But he wrote an incredible article that talks about the cocaine rush of the 80s and the 90s some may refer to it as the crack epidemic and i want you to recognize that julie because that is the difference cocaine associated with a certain ethnicity and population demographic crack associated with a certain epi- uh, ethnicity demographic and population and so uh, have you ever read or have you ever watched a series on um, the history channel called um, a history of drugs no i have not seen that so i would 100 percent. i think it's five or six episodes about an hour long a piece i would recommend them to every listener because exactly what you're talking about the the history of drug usage utilization and eventual illegality is very much a racist issue throughout our history. And and crack is probably, I would say, the most prolific example of injustice in the way that predominantly white drugs versus predominantly um, lower socioeconomic drugs are classified in sentencing. But it actually happens a lot earlier in our history than we even get to that um, when we start seeing differentiation in legal use for things like cocaine. And so I'm so very interested in the story because until I'd, I'd watched that series, I didn't understand 
how that migration of, of legality changed. And then ultimately getting to exactly what you're talking to um, created a ever more biased criminal justice system. Sorry, go ahead. Yes, absolutely. So off the top, you know, Charlton starts the article with Silicon Valley in the 1980s was the hub of an international drug trafficking network that fueled technological innovation and criminalized black people. And so inside of the article, he gives a great deal of data that talks about the cast of characters that populated the tech hub of Silicon Valley. He talks about uh, the amount of money and uh, the innovation and, and and the technology that was pouring out of Silicon Valley uh, in the, the late 80s, early 90s, if you will. He talks about some of the incredible organizations that we recognize, the IBMs, the Lockheeds, the Syntex, the HPs, um, you know, and, 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 and what he says to, to wrap a ribbon around all of this incredible fervor around innovation and disruption and bringing to market what we, you know, began to learn of and, and enjoy back then and, and certainly are learning and enjoying right now was all fueled by something stronger than caffeine. It was fueled in large part by cocaine. We're talking about people from bathroom attendants to shoeshine boys to mailroom clerks and even, uh, of course, these executives and people that are working inside of these tech companies. And so, you know, the article really goes on to talk about this incredible cast of tech, the players that are there, the need for, you know, this constant uh, jolt, if you will, so that they can continue to, to, to develop and to innovate. And, and what he frames in this story is a troubling intersection between technology, race, and racism. And we talk about the, the difference between cocaine and crack and, and how both of them, Julie, are seen entirely different uh, in the judicial system. So I don't know if you know this or our listeners know this, but uh, and I don't know if it's this way now, but then five grams of crack guaranteed a black man five years in jail, five grams, five years in jail. In the article, it says a white woman would have had to have been caught with 500 grams of powder cocaine to get the same sentence. Five grams of crack, which is the size of a quarter, 500 grams of of cocaine, which is something that won't fit inside of a large post office box at the post office. Yeah, it's not not going to fit in your purse. Not going to fit in your purse. And white people are still more likely to not be arrested for recreational amounts of cocaine than black people are who also have recreational amounts of cocaine. So the crack epidemic, the sentencing guidelines are worse, but also the at the time of, of discovery of paraphernalia or um, possession, black people still get arrested predominantly more for the same amount of cocaine than white people do. Absolutely. And so what we what the reason I brought this up is because the article uh, inside of the article, the author coins the phrase titled Black Software. Uh, and he has a book titled Black Software. Uh, the subtitle is The Internet and Racial Justice from the Afronet to Black Lives Matter. And so let me just take a step back inside of this period of time where we know that we often refer to it as the crack epidemic. 
the DEA Drug Enforcement Agency actually designed an automated computer system, Julie, titled GREAT. And GREAT stood for Gang Reporting Evaluation and Tracking System. And this system, you know, identified and tracked what they believed to be gang members who were distributing crack cocaine. They weren't using the system to track individuals that were using regular cocaine, just crack cocaine. It was populated by what they believed to be the persona, you know, a young black male, close crop hair or jerry curl wearing gold chains, rings. This is all coming from the research in the article. And so what he's getting at is that way back, not way back, but in the 80s, we are talking about a federal government that built and utilized technology often created by people in Silicon Valley to target and to pursue those individuals from black and brown neighborhoods, primarily from poor neighborhoods, secondarily, and maybe on a tertiary level, uh, those that are white that are distributing, but primarily black and brown, black and brown people. And, and the reason this is important is because that trend has not stopped. Right. It has not stopped. It, it really is around how technology in some ways from the 1960 to the present uh, has been used to neutralize the threat uh, of black people that black people pose to existing racial order. And I am really, really surprised, Julie, that so many people still find black and brown people to be threatening. It also talks about um, the way that technology and computing tools have been built to address and mitigate uh, black and brown presence inside of community, their ability to build wealth uh, and their ability to wage a war on racial justice. So I just thought that this was a fascinating story over in The Guardian. Uh, I thought that it was one that, uh, you know, raised a reminder for all of us that since we are on the precipice in some ways and we are layers deep in others with regards to blockchain and machine learning and artificial intelligence and quantum computing and a host of other platforms that we don't lose sight of the, the need for inclusion in how these technologies are developed. These technologies are impacting our biases, our opinions, our prejudices, uh, our ignorance in some cases. And it's not something that we can be silent about. Make sense? Yeah. One, one thing that stood out in the article to me, too, just to kind of wrap us up is there's a, a statement. So computer sciences scientists, excuse me, and government, education and private industry conspired to build what became came to be called the criminal justice information systems, which is basically like the great what you're talking about, the the profiling systems that target black and brown people um, based on perceived criminality. What frustrated me a little bit about that statement and a couple of like statements in the article is I think that we lose readers and we lose listeners, not us listeners, but but diversity and inclusion leaders lose listeners when we use words like conspire mm -hmm. and we talk generally about a destruction of of a community, or um, they even say that the DEA and the CIA facilitated the flow of cocaine from um, Silicon Valley to LA. 
but they don't go into detail. And those kind of generalizations are kind of conspiracy based language, which is I don't think what was meant here can affect the way people are reading the article. And so, you know, with that, I don't think that there was a conspiracy. I think that there was and is what you're still talking about, an inherent racism that is systemic and drives both individuals and our systems to either deliberately or unconsciously build technology that is further creating systems and systemic racism. And it, and it becomes this cycle. And I think we lose people when we talk about conspiracies because this is built into our system. And it wasn't four or five guys who got together and said, hey, let's let's fuck over the South Central community. It, it was built into the fabric of how they thought already and how our governments function and continue to function. And continue to function. That's yes. the power phrase right there. And continue to function in some ways nefariously, sometimes overt, sometimes often covert. And we really have to to be aware of that. When we think about facial recognition technology, when we think about the experiment that they did against the members of, I believe it was Congress, it could have been the Senate, but it was certainly the political uh, class, if you will, and how many of those individuals were identified through facial recognition as being criminal. And the, mo- the m- most of them that were identified as political and criminal were people that were black, not not white men, you know, not the white women that were in the Senate or in Congress. Again, I can't remember which house. And so, you know, I just share the story because not because I'm trying to be a conspiratist. Is that a word? I don't know if that's a uh, word. Conspirator. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> I don't know. But, but I'm not trying to be that person. I'm trying to be the one who continues to remind you uh, with a soft tremor, a vocal tremor. I'm, I'm here to remind you that we cannot we cannot take our eye off of the ball of importance. And I know that there are a number of balls and radars in front of us that demand our attention, the political climate, the changes in the workplace. Our communities are shifting. Cities are becoming smart in some cases, uh, abandoned in others. There's a lot happening. Generation sandwich. I mean, there's so many things that are going on, but I'm just hoping that you find some level of importance here and that you understand the role that you play in being conscious, conscious, conscious. You got to be ever, forever present, Julie. Yes. And it's not a conspiracy. It's reality. And the more white people understand that, the more power we're going to have to help change the system. Absolutely. So my story this week, interest to a lot of the women uh, in diversity and inclusion and talent acquisition and HR that you know I spend a great deal of time with and I admire and, and look up to, but just I think as well, most women within, um, within the workplace. So I know you've heard of Beyonce, who we yeah. often call Queen B, uh, yeah. but, <laughs> but have you ever heard of of Queen Bee Syndrome. I've never heard of that. I'm actually pulling that up now. <laughs> All right. So I found this great article that's a couple weeks old um, from Forbes and Dr. Sean Andrews, who is, is a female and an expert in diversity and inclusion and all types of sort of uh, microaggressions and subcultures within the workplace that help us to identify our biases, said that the most common question that she receives from audiences is, 
why don't women support other women especially in the workplace. Yeah. And I have to tell you that I went and I looked for this article because I had a situation this week uh, that I got a little ranty about. And, and my husband said, you should probably A, get this out of your system by talking about it on your podcast and then B, try to let it go. So I was at I was at conference this week and there's uh, a, a fairly elite group of women on stage that I haven't been connected to before. And, you know, listening uh, to the to the moderator, who is also a female, and she talked a lot about herself. She was she was really very proud of herself. And as a woman, I tend to kind of shy away talking about my achievements and, and those kind of things, probably to the point where I'm I'm not doing it enough. And I know that. And so I tried to kind of push that reaction aside that I had to, you know, like she's pretty braggy, that kind of thing. And said, you know, this is a woman who really her her business is empowering other women, literally is to help create an executive ecosystem for women, for influencers. And you know, I'm I've I've got an executive title now. I'm leading our team and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, I I want to kind of build up my executive presence, my speaking, all of those things that are important for me to help our organization grow. So cool. So I reach out, send a LinkedIn and said, hey, I really enjoyed your presentation and the power of the other women that you brought to the stage. I would love to connect with you on LinkedIn and also just, you know, learn more about your organization and maybe buy one of your products or your services, right? I mean, pretty damn simple. How often do you get a sales lead like that? Pretty good supportive message. Add a girl, spend a couple of dollars. Yeah. So she has left me on red for two days. You, you feel in some kind of way about that? <laughs> I'm feeling some kind of you, way about that. Some kind of way about that. I got I'm it. Feeling some kind of way about that. Okay. You know, and this has happened to me twice in the past six months, where women who would definitely not be my peers, but certainly would have the opportunity to be my mentors in both disability and and just as females that I've reached out to, connected to after, not blindly, right? After there's been some engagement to say, hey, I'd really like to connect with you and learn a little bit more, not be my best friend or come to my house for dinner. Just can I add you to my LinkedIn profile where you have 10,000 followers? Yeah. Yeah, no, no. And this is how I feel so strongly that women behave once they get to an executive level. And how critical I think it is for me to continue to recognize as I grow as an executive to not behave that way, right? And this, this is a minor thing. I'm, I'm just having a little tantrum, like, let's be honest. But it is, it is an example of how women don't support other women in the workplace. And it really got me thinking, like, what is this? Why does this happen? And the article that I found by, by Dr. Andrews kind of went through these three or four different rules or syndromes that happen and are kind of demonstrative of why women aren't supporting each other. And do you agree? Because I'm looking at, I'm scrolling through, I look at, uh, she's got like four reasons. Do, do you agree <laughs> with those reasons? So one of them I had never heard of before, and it was the power dead even rule. Okay. And once I read it, I know that it's true because I've 
done it. I've been guilty of it. And I have seen other women do it to each other since we were literally born, right? If we could talk, we started putting the power dead even rule into place. And it was basically that if you perceive someone, perceive a woman or a girl to have more power than you do, then you work to bring that power back down to dead even. And that's how females would retain those relationships because they didn't want to be in a power structure that was uneven with another woman. That is absolutely true. So, so Julie, does the article talk about how you are actually, you are aggressively trying to deteriorate someone's character, persona, power, presence, position? Does it talk about or give examples or can you give one since you say you've seen it in your own work? Can you give an example of how you've done that? So I think a lot of times, yes, it's a lot more, it's a lot more subtle. All right. You know, there's sometimes there's that mean girl that just is out to ruin you. Um, but most of the time it's that the eye roll, the, um, oh, you could have done this better or treating our female employees to higher standards than we hold our male employees to, you know, criticisms of appearance, age, those kind of things that just sort of needle you down in a very passive aggressive way that I think a lot of women don't even recognize that we do to each other to keep the power dynamic even. I think that absolutely happens all of the time. And any woman who's woman who's listening can back me up, I would say almost 100%. And then we get into Queen B. And that's really like, Hey, you know, here I am on the stage at this big, big conference. I've built my reputation as a human centered leader, and I created a company that's designed to help women, but I'm not going to help a woman who reaches out to me on LinkedIn, right? I'm not going to kind of give that status or that support, unless they're pretty close to the same level as me or as I perceive them as as being closer to a peer. And, you know, I think that that one is less it is a lot less common, but still does happen. And it's what I feel like I've I've seen in the last few months of my life. And then there's just sort of the the basic I figured it out. Why should I help you figure it out? Like mm. meritocracy, pull yourself up by the bootstraps way that I think Americans treat each other too frequently, but that women do so more to other women than they do to men in similar situations. And, you know, I, I'm a I'm a white girl, you know, I'm a white woman. And when these things are happening to me, it, it also causes me to stop and say, I know that it's happening a lot more to women of color, to women with visible disabilities, to women who might identify in the LGBTQ community more than it's happening to me. And so if I'm feeling it, there are definitely other women in our world world feeling about it. And I just want to kind of call it out and say, hey, like we need to be better to each other. And there are lots of women, you know, Jackie Clayton is a great example of someone who has stepped up and always been available to me, you know, as I've gotten really familiar and intimate with this industry and, and growing my career. You know, my former boss, Chris Foss, absolutely was that mentor leader. And I think that as women, we need to be focusing on that and focusing on recognizing that these these rules and syndromes exist and working them out of our behavior as we move up to uh 
you know, a leadership level, period. Well, first of all, I thought Dr. Sean Andrews was an African-American woman until I scrolled down to the bottom of the article and saw that uh, she was a white woman in California. Shout out to Dr. Sean Andrews. She got that good, 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 good colored name. Got that good color. In the I name. thought so, she was so, a guy. Yeah, so, so, so check it. I, I think that um, it's interesting because, you know, oftentimes when we think about relationships and inside of the workplace, and, and I'll just stay in the workplace, um, there is a lot of nuance to that. You know, you have those instances where, you know, if, if you are the only one in the room or one of few that could possibly be in a room, uh, sometimes you don't want to convene at the water fountain. We have those instances where people like Ursula Burns, former CEO of Xerox, said that black women, as you mentioned, women of color, black women are considered a double outsider. And so that uh, sometimes it's hard for uh, them to matriculate, to ascend in the corporate sphere. Uh, because of that. And so you're right. These assaults do take place, not always by men, which is why oftentimes when I show up and speak, you know, I will I will make sure. Yes, I'm going to call out some of the infractions that men do, but I'm also going to highlight the the role that women play in pay inequality, in yeah. a lack of promotion, in thwarting opportunities for learning and development, in sabotaging desires or requests to to have mentors and strategic support systems put in place and speaking badly about other women when the door is closed and uh, headcount management conversations are taking place. And I can go on and on and on. And so, you know, no one is immune from whatever is taking place inside of our workplace. And I know that our listeners may say, well, that's not me. I've never done that before. And, 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 and I understand, I get it. Uh, but, but again, we bring these stories up because they are happening. Folks are not just writing these as fairy tales. This January article by Dr. Sean Andrews from out in California, where she's got an, a website that talks about inspiring and empowering individuals. You know, she's writing this from a, a position of either experience, research, or some combination of the two. So, uh, you know, it may not be a shocking headline like the first story, but it's an important story. And it's one that I'm glad you raised for our list. So we've just got a couple minutes left and we, we are wrapping up this week's show, our fifth of 2020, I believe. Yeah. And I don't know if you had um, any honorable mentions or name drops that you wanted to start us off with. Yeah, we're going to try something new. You know, we'll see because, again, we have a limited amount of time. So we want to see if we can kind of just bring your attention to one. And an honor- honorable mention that I have is uh, on CNBC, they did a story about Facebook's diversity problem and their desire to double representation uh, over a period of time. And Maxine Williams, their global chief diversity officer, said, quote, we're trying to double our diverse workforce in four years, even if it doesn't work. And so she's making a declarative and very present and public statement. Uh, And I appreciate her for doing such because I've certainly had some criticism of Maxine Williams over the years. You know, in fairness, when you say and or are pointing to do something right, I want to be one to highlight that. So we'll make sure we include it in the show notes. We're not going to talk about it today, but it is a great uh, article that just came out this week on CNBC titled, we're trying to double our diverse workforce 
in four years, even if it doesn't work. So that's my honorable mention. And and I want to make sure that I I point people to race ahead, the fortune newsletter and Illyria News, A-L-E-R-I-A News, Illyria News, two great resources for people that are committed to this work. Awesome. So my name drop this week is Tim Meehan, and he's the VP of and global head of emerging technologies at Pontoon Solutions. And I was in Dallas a couple of weeks ago, and Tim really took some time to sit down with myself and part of my team and kind of walk us through what their solution was, how we can work together, and make some great introductions and just even bring, you know, disability and inclusion further along in in their thought process. So thanks, Tim. It, it was great to meet you in person and, and look forward to working more closely with Pontoon and with you. My shout out is Morgan Lobb of Versita, V-E-R-C-I-D-A. Maybe one day I'll give you a bit of backstory on the name Versita. But in any event, he runs the largest diversity related job board over in London. I love the platform, the information that they collect, the information that they present to candidates. A lot of organizations are talking about employer branding these days. But when you think about employer branding, when you think about all of the great things that are happening inside of organizations, the only persons really seeing that are the people that are inside of the company. And so how do you share that information with people that may be interested in the company? And I believe Vercida, V-E-R-C-I-D-A, has an incredible platform. They are London based right now, but they will be making their way over to the U.S. Uh, sometime in Q2, Q3. Uh, and I want you to stay tuned and continue to be on the lookout for Morgan Lobb and his team. I will double that. And uh, I will just wrap us up by saying that I'm home for the next couple of weeks, but we'll look forward to seeing Morgan in London at both TA Tech and Unleash in London. And happy Valentine's Day to the love of my life, Chad Sowash, who is producing this podcast for us today. Take us home, Tor. Happy love. Happy Valentine's Day to the love of my life. My mother's birthday is February 14th. And without her, absolutely none of this would be possible. And I close reminding each and every one of you to find your voice inside of your workplace. Share the pod with your digital tribe. Make sure you tell a friend to tell a friend. Of course, you can catch me on Sirius XM channel 126 at 1 p.m. every single Sunday, 1 p.m. in the East. And for now, Julie and I, we're ghosts. See ya. Thanks for listening to Crazy in the King podcast. I'm Julie Sowash, your co-host with Torn Ellis. Follow us on social media as Torn Ellis or Julie Sowash. And also follow our hashtag, Crazy and the King. This episode was produced by my gorgeous husband, Chad Sowash. And our music is by DJ Sells, straight out of Baltimore. You can find Crazy and the King wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us. And if you like it, share it with a friend. We'll see you soon. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. 
Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube.